we've now come to the time where we worship the Lord through the preached word. On last week, we began a new series called This We Believe, an exploration of our statement of faith. And last Sunday, we looked at our convictions concerning God. Today, we want to dive into our beliefs and our convictions concerning the Bible, Holy Scripture, Holy Writ. And here is what we profess concerning our belief in the Bible. This is our statement of faith. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, and through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And so this morning, I want us to look at some of the truths and convictions concerning the Bible. First of all, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture answers this question. How did we get the Bible? How did we get the Bible? The answer to that question comes in two passages. The first passage I want us to turn to and look at together can be found in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16. I'll give you a moment to find it because this is a crucial verse to understanding scripture. Second Timothy chapter number three, verse number 16. This would be a great memory verse. Here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's look at those first few words of verse number 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. So immediately we learn one way we, we receive scripture, the primary way we receive scripture is through a divine author. A divine author. How do we see that? Where do we get that in scripture? This, this phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's where we get our word inspiration. Theopanoustos in the Greek. It's a compound word. Theos is where we get the word God. Panoustos means breath. So that term literally means it, uh, that scripture is God-breathed. Just as our breath form our words, so does the breath of God bring forth his word. 
So then, Scripture is indeed the Word of God. Scripture clearly has a divine origin. Time and time again in Scripture, we see phrases like, and God said, or thus said the Lord. The divine origin of Scripture is also attested in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, which reads like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Beloved, it is clear from scripture that God speaks. And when God speaks, we call that revelation. Revelation is the self-disclosure or the unveiling of truth from God to man, which would otherwise be unknown to man. Let me give that to you again. Revelation is the self-disclosure or unveiling of truth from God to man, which would otherwise be unknown to man. What that means then is that revelation is clearly a sovereign act of God. In other words, God is not obligated in any way to reveal himself to mankind. It is God who initiates revelation. And as we said last week, there are two types of revelation. General revelation, that's revelation that's, uh, uh, that, such as creation. That type of revelation is obvious and clear to all people at all times. And then there's special revelation. That's revelation or God disclosing truth to certain people at certain times in certain places. The Bible is special revelation. Now, let me put a pen right here and make sure you understand and understand our terminology. First of all, revelation is God's self-disclosure from, from, from him to us. Scripture is revelation. Now, our understanding of scripture or, or when we gain clarity about a scripture, that's not revelation, that's illumination. That's important because if you're not, if you listen to some of y'all's favorite TV preachers, they'll say, I had this revelation. No, 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 they didn't. No, they did not. They had an illumination. God reveals and he revealed it through his prophets, through the apostles, that that's revelation. And it is inspired. But understanding is illumination. And so, what we have here, the Bible, is inspired revelation. Now, I, I must share with you that there were some issues that arose in theology concerning the extent of inspiration. In other words, here's the question. How much of scripture is inspired? Some, some have argued for a partial inspiration view of scripture. This view holds that certain parts of the Bible are supernaturally inspired, but other parts are not. Namely, those accounts that would have been unknowable, such as the accounts of creation and some prophecy. That's one view. Another view concerning the extent of inspiration says that only the concepts in scripture are inspired. 
but not the very words of Scripture. Another view held among conservatives today believes that the purposes of Scripture are inspired but not the actual words because there may be errors and discrepancies in its content. And to these type of views concerning the extent of revelation, we have to vehemently disagree and disavow the above views. Our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, settles this matter concerning the extent of revelation. It clearly says, all scripture is inspired. Not some of it, but all of it. Not just the thoughts, concepts, or purposes, but each individual word is inspired. We believe all scripture, every word is breathed out by God from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to Revelation 22 verse number 21. All of it is God-breathed. We clearly see that scripture has a divine origin. However, we also know that God worked through human beings to communicate his truth. So therefore, we have to address inspiration and human authorship. So so we see we got scripture through the divine author, but then there there were also human authors. We believe in the dual authorship of scripture. As we have said, scripture is of divine origin. However, God used humans and their language and culture to communicate revelation. So if God used humans, then this position leaves us with some important questions to answer. One, how did this happen? And two, if humans participated in the authorship of Scripture, then it has to be prone to error, right? Well, let's see what the Apostle Peter said about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He dealt with this issue for us. Turn there, 2 Peter chapter number 1. And I want us to look at verse number 20 and 21. These, this is the second main scripture we need to understand concerning our belief around scripture. Here's how 2 Peter 1 verse 20 reads. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter here, in these two verses, make it clear that scripture is ultimately from God. He is the source. It was not produced by the will of man. However, God used men as the agency of his revelation. So then, the question that we must ask is, how did he do that and protected from falsehood, deceit, and error. Well, he says that, Peter tells us that in those two verses. He says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the word, the Greek word for carried along 
is the same word that is used to speak of wind moving or carrying along a sailboat. In the same way that the wind carries and moves a sailboat, the Holy Spirit moved and carried along the human authors as they recorded and wrote scripture. God oversaw, superintended, and directed the entire process. Yet, he allowed the personality, the culture, and the language of the authors to be expressed as they wrote. So then, here's what we can define inspiration as. We can say inspiration is the work of the Holy Spirit to produce the Bible through human authors so that, so that it is God's word just as surely as the breath of our mouth produces our own words. Inspiration is the work of the Holy Spirit to produce the Bible through human authors so that it is God's word just as surely as the breath of our mouth produces our own words. So then, as our statement of faith reads, we believe in the verbally inspired word of God. And we say verbally because we're, we believe all scripture is inspired, not just the concepts or the purposes, but every word. So we obviously believe in the dual authorship of scripture. Inspiration answers the question, how did we get scripture? It came from God through human authors. But the question still that some may be asking is, but how did we get these 66 books of the Bible? Why are there just 66, not less or more? Well, that issue brings up to our second point this morning. What, we're, what you are asking, that question ref, deals with the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture. The word canon means a measure or a rule. A canon was, was a measuring rule that was often used by masons and carpenters. It was a rule or standard for testing straightness. The biblical canon then is the collection of scriptural books that God has given to his people. But who and who determined the canon and how did they determine the canon? Well, historically speaking, beloved, the canon of the Bible was formed gradually. It happened over many years. However, there was one particular situation in church history that contributed to the formation of the canon. In the second century AD, there was a heretic by the name of Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. And this heretic, Marcion, produced a list of his approved books of the Bible. He believed that the Old Testament God was an evil God of wrath. So he eliminated the Old Testament and certain parts of the New Testament that favorably referred to the God of the Old Testament. 
to deal with this heresy, a council was formed in the church and they dealt with this issue once and for all. So then there were several tests then that a book had to pass in order to be included in the canon. I want to share briefly some of these with you. For the Old Testament, here, here were some of the tests. One, did the book indicate God was speaking through the writer and that it was considered authoritative? Did the book indicate God was speaking through the writer and that it was considered authoritative? For, for We have a couple of examples for me to share with you this morning. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it starts like this. God spoke all these words. That's clear that God was speaking through the writer. And since God is speaking, it is authoritative. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Again, God speaks through his man. So that was one test for the consideration of Old Testament books, that the book indicate God was speaking through the writer and it was considered authoritative. Secondly, the second test for Old Testament was the human author recognized as a spokesman of God. That is, was he a prophet or did he have the gift of prophecy? We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. The Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, he's speaking to Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So, so scriptures like that would indicate that it's from God and that the man was authorized to speak on behalf of God. The third test, was the book historically accurate? Did it reflect a record of actual facts? And fourthly, the best evidence for the authority and inspiration of the book of the Bible was that Jesus quoted from that Old Testament book. And we see that happening time after time in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So that, those were the tests for Old Testament books to be included in the Bible. Well, what about the New Testament, though? Good question. First of all, there had to be divine authentication of the book. In other words, was, there, was the book inspired? Did the book give internal evidence of inspiration? Was it a proper spiritual character? Did it edify the church? Was it doctrinally accurate? That was one test, divine authentication of the book. Secondly, there must have been human authentication. In other words, what this means is the, the, what would be asked of the book was, was the author an apostle or did he have the endorsement of an apostle? So when an apostle spoke, they believed that that apostle was, when he wrote and spoke, was inspired by God. But we do have books in the New Testament that are not written by apostles. For instance, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Why is that included in the canon? Because Mark had the endorsement of the apostle Peter. And so Mark is considered inspired. Luke, Luke, we have the gospel of Luke. Luke was not an apostle. So why is his letter included? Well, 
because he wrote under the endorsement and authority of Paul. He was oftentimes a traveling companion doing ministry with the Apostle Paul. And so that's why books like Mark and Luke are included in the canon. The, 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 the second test for human authentication was, was the book universally accepted by the church? In history, the consensus of the church mattered. It was believed that God worked through his church, which is one of the reasons our, denom- our church believes in congregationalism. And so the 66 books that we have, the church universally accepted it as scripture. Now, knowing the church like I know the church, we have to believe that God providentially directed and guided this process for the universal church at large to have unity concerning whether a book should be included in the canon. Only the 66 books we have in the Bible were universally accepted by the church. Every other book, namely the Apocrypha, never received wide acceptance by the church. Furthermore, the Apocrypha is never quoted in the New Testament. So then we can rest assured that the 66 books we call Holy Scripture are the books God wanted for his church and no others. So that's why we have these 66 books. So we've talked about the inerrancy of Scripture. We looked at the canon, uh, the inspiration of Scripture, I'm sorry. And we looked at the canon of Scripture. Let's look now at the inerrancy of Scripture. Here's the question that inerrancy answers. Is the Bible truthful? Is the Bible truthful? One of the important claims in our statement of faith on the Bible says we believe the Bible is without error in the original writings. To speak of the Bible as being without error refers to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. If the Bible is free from error, then it is truthful in all that it says. So then, beloved, we can be confident in the truthfulness of Scripture because as we said earlier, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible has God as its author. And since God is the divine author of Scripture, it has to be truthful because God is truth and truthful. Beloved, God cannot and does not lie. He can only speak the truth. The scripture lays this out clearly in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Here's what it says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Jesus Christ himself, when he prayed for his disciples in John chapter number 17, asked God the Father, he said, I want you to sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Beloved, when Jesus declared your word is truth, he affirmed the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. Jesus realized, as should we, that the Bible cannot err because it is the word of God. And since the Bible is inerrant and truthful, then it is trustworthy and reliable. 
Say that again. Since the Bible is inerrant and truthful, then it is trustworthy and reliable. That should have got an amen in your living room. To trust in the word of God is to trust God. And the trustworthiness of scripture confirms that God will never break his promises to us. There's another amen for you. And since scripture is trustworthy, we can and should look to it for truth, direction, guidance, and wisdom. So that's the inerrancy of scripture. Then finally, our statement of faith says that the Bible is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. So now we believe in the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. By authority, we mean the Bible possesses the supreme right to define what we are to believe and how we are to behave. Rewind, press play. By authority, we mean the Bible possesses the supreme right to define what we are to believe and how we are to behave. The Bible is the standard by which all truth is to be judged. And because it has God as its author, the Bible has the right to command belief and obedience from all human beings. The Bible, beloved, is the authority of the church. The Bible is the authority of the church. Not the Pope, not a priest, not a pastor has final authority in the church. Only God has authority in the church. And the Bible is God's word. And so it has the last say-so on matters of faith and practice in the church. It teaches the church her doctrine. <laughs> it teaches the church her doctrine and the duties that entail. The Bible has authority because it has God as its author. Beloved, we must remember that God, who is the author of Scripture, is the highest being. And as we said last week, only God is the only one that has always been, always is, and always will be. He is the only being have the, having the power of his own existence within himself. He is the creator of all and therefore is the ruler of all creation. God is king and is thus sovereign. The word of God, the Bible, is his kingdom edict. Our responsibility then as citizens of the kingdom of God is to simply believe and obey what he has revealed. Our responsibility, beloved, is to submit to the word of God. And so the implications of this is that we have to believe and obey the Bible whether we agree or not. Belief in obedience is not predicated on your agreement. Belief in obedience is only predicated on the word of God. Only God is all-knowing. Only God is all-wise. 
We, 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 we are finite in our knowledge, in our wisdom. We, there's no possible way that we can know better than God. So when it comes to the Bible, we, we believe and obey everything it says, whether we agree or not. Beloved, if all scripture is God-breathed, then all scripture is authoritative. And if all scripture is authoritative, then we have to believe and obey all the scripture. We don't get to cherry pick what parts of the Bible we believe and want to obey and disobey. And I'm passionate about this because we are now uh, experiencing the liberalization of our culture. We we live in an age of self-autonomy. We live in a day where people can believe what they want to believe and no one should be judged for what they believe. The current culture teaches us to live our truth. There is no absolute truth. And the culture today says truth is relative and subjective. You believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, and we just leave each other alone. And to all of that, we say nonsense. The word of God is the truth by which any truth claim is to be measured and judged. And if a truth claim is inconsistent with the word of God, then that claim is to be judged to be false and the word of God be true. That's the authority of scripture. How then do we respond? Because we don't want to just be people who know things. We, we are called not to just be hearers, but to be doers. So how do we respond to the inspiration and inerrancy and authority of Scripture? First of all, we need to know God. Know God. God has revealed himself so that we might know him. To know God is the aim of our entire life. To know God is eternal life. Beloved, know your God. In scripture, we learn who God is and what God has done. And so we respond to the Bible by knowing this God. And and to get to know this God through scripture requires the reading and the study of scripture. The study of scripture requires researching the context of the passage, identifying and studying important words and themes and and arriving at the author's intended meaning of the passage. That is crucial. The goal of, 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 of biblical interpretation is to get at the author's intended meaning. Not what we want it to say. And and we have a number of ways that you can do that. And if you need help learning how to study the Bible, reach out to me. If you you are a female, a woman in our church, we have a a special Bible study just for you. So this is is possible. One of the things we didn't talk about, we, we also believe in the clarity of Scripture, meaning that we can understand Scripture. But it takes a little work. It takes reading and studying. So first of all, we respond by knowing our God. But secondly, we respond by worshiping God. Worship God. Worship is the response to revelation. Whenever God reveals, the response from those who receive the revelation is worship. 
to worship God is to devote all of our lives to him and his kingdom. That, that's, that word devote is key. To worship God is to devote all of our lives to him and his kingdom. We, we've defined worship like this at the bridge. Worship is the total surrender to God of every aspect of daily life. I hope you were saying that along with me as I said it. Worship is the total surrender to God of every aspect of daily life. To worship God is to be in awe of who God is. It is laying prostrate before him in adoration and submission. To worship God is to bow the knee before his majesty. To worship God is to say, I surrender. I submit to you, my king. Know God. Worship God. But we can also trust God. We mentioned this earlier when we talked about the inerrancy of scripture, so I won't harp on this long. God can be trusted. And so we believe him. We can believe his word. And most of all, we can believe the gospel. Because in the Bible, God has revealed that he is holy. And he has revealed that the purpose of the creation of man was to worship him. He has revealed that that, that instead Instead of worshiping God and being loyal to God, we, his creatures, rebelled against God, our creator and our king. Scripture reveals that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. So as a result, we deserve eternal punishment. However, God sent revelation to us to know that he so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God has revealed that Jesus Christ came into the world to take on the punishment we justly and rightly deserve by dying on the cross. That's And the scriptures declare that that same Jesus didn't stay dead, that he rose victoriously from the grave and now sits exalted at the right hand of his father. And all this was done so that guilty sinners could be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus has done all the work. Hallelujah. We simply respond to this free gift of grace by faith. And so I implore you today, if you, if you are watching this stream today and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for salvation and, and forgiveness of sins, I implore you to put all of your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. We can also, we can also respond by obeying God. We see this in the Great Commission when Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. The goal of discipleship, the goal of revelation is obedience. The word of God has the power to transform us. That's why the next 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says all scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
We can also respond to God's revelation of scripture by making God known. We know him and then we make him known to the world. That's our mission. We, we see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul tells his, his, his apprentice, his mentee, Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming and is now here when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myths. Paul makes it very clear to Timothy he needs to make God known by entrusting it to other faithful men who will make God known by preaching the word. But Jesus himself told us to make God known. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Finally, I want to share with you that there's also a corporate response. We are to be a word-centered church. A word-centered church. That means that when we gather together to worship the Lord, it needs to be saturated with the word of God. So when we gather, we do five things. We read the word. That, that's scriptural. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture. We read the word. But we also preach the word. A high view of scripture must lead and can only lead to a high view of preaching. A high view of scripture must lead to a high view of preaching. It, it, I love this because I, I, I have gotten a lot of flack while I've been in Wichita that I think preaching can solve every problem. Well, I believe in the power of God's word to solve problems. And one way God works is through the preaching ministry of the church. I'm not saying that's the only way he works, but that it is a primary way he works is through the preaching of his word. Beloved, from the beginning of the church till right now today, God has always multiplied his church when his word is preached. And at the bridge, we preach the word, not opinions, not politics, not self-help lessons, not motivational lessons, not racist agendas. We preach the word. We proclaim, but thus said the Lord. We read the word. We preach the word. We sing the word. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. The apostle Paul wrote, let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Our songs have a discipling ministry in them. And so they have to be word rich, theologically robust, and doctrinally sound. The, 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 the songs we sing are to be about him, God, and what he has revealed in his word. They are not to be about us. So that's why there's some, sing, some songs we don't sing. Why? Because they're man-centered and man-focused. We're not to exalt us, we're to exalt Christ. We read the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, we pray the word. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, the apostle Paul says, I desire them that in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We pray how the word tells us to pray. We pray for what the word tells us to pray. We pray using the word of God when we pray. We pray believing that God will answer in according with the promises of his word. And finally, we see the word. So we've said we read the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we see the word. In other words, seeing the word involves our senses when we uh, partake in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We are seeing a visible demonstration of the word of the gospel on display. In baptism, we see the, the, the death, the co-death, the co-burial, and the co-resurrection of us with Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Us coming alive and, and, and as a new person. And then in the Lord's Supper, we have another visible display of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed every time we partake the Lord's Supper. And so we are to see the word as well. This we believe in the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for revealing yourself, your will, your ways to us. Thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to the earth, lived a perfect life, revealed you, the Father, to us, died in, in our place, was buried and rose on the third day. Thank you for revealing that it is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. And so God, help us now to appropriate the word in our hearts so that we might respond correctly. Help us, God, to submit to what your words say we are to believe and what your word says we are to obey. That we pray that the word of God, the word of Christ would dwell richly in our heart. We ask all these things in Christ's name.